Hi. 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 Hello. I'm curious about. I'm curious about. I'm curious about. I'm curious about building open, authentic, loving relationship. I'm curious about jealousy. I'm curious about polyamory. Does it just mean that you're fucking all the time? How can I tell my parents that my partner is already married? I'm curious about... How do you know when you're too busy to have another relationship? I'm curious about dominant and subordinate relationships. I'm curious about sexual health. How can relationships evolve with people as they grow and change? Welcome to the Curious Fox Podcast. For those challenging the status quo in love, sex, and relationships. My name is Effie Blue. And I'm Jacqueline Misla. And today, in honor of Asian Pacific American Heritage Month, we're revisiting an episode that we recorded with Michelle High. Michelle runs the popular Instagram page Polyamorous While Asian, where she uses her platform of over 27,000 followers to normalize non-monogamy and amplify and promote the voices of other people of color who are significantly underrepresented in non-monogamous communities. Before we start, as a quick note, While speaking with Michelle, we reference polyamory, as that is the language that she uses within her work. However, we understand that this conversation has broader applicability beyond the specific practice of polyamory and expands the non-monogamy as a whole. As someone who works with a diverse set of clients from all over the world, different identities and backgrounds, I found this conversation to be super interesting. We hope you enjoy the interview. One of the things that you talk a lot about that is one of the reasons why we wanted to talk to you is you talk about intersectional polyamory. And first, I'm wondering, can you can you name what that means for you, what that phrase means? Yeah, yeah. A lot of time in polyamorous spaces, it's like, oh, you know, how do you handle jealousy? How do you open up the relationship? And all of these, these interesting concepts about relationships and, da- and dynamics and whatnot. But a lot of times polyamory is seen as like white people shit. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's there's a lot that goes in with it that a lot of times engaging in polyamorous community or relationships can come with a sort of like a bit of privilege and, mm-hmm. you know, not, not everyone can access it and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And like there's there's a reason why it's it's seen as like white people shit. Like it's mm-hmm. it's not really like an accident. And so I think like intersectional polyamory is like, OK, you know, how do we combat like ableism and racism and classism mm-hmm. and all the isms and stuff to make polyamory really more inclusive and accessible and just much more diverse. Yeah. It's funny. I know that Jacqueline has her own take on this and, and you know, because she's a Latina woman, this intersectional piece that sort of how it's a white person's shit idea um, came up for me is I once told somebody who just randomly we were talking and I told them that I was polyamorous and he said, oh, you must be rich. And I was like, huh? That's really weird. <laughs> what? And he, and then we, we, we chatted for a while and he's like, yeah, I don't have that kind of, I don't kind of have that kind of money. Like polyamorous, polyamory is for, for rich people who can afford to go on like all the dates and have multiple households. And I was like, wow, like I totally get that. I get that point of view. I had never thought about it before. And it was, you know, for me, it wasn't, that wasn't my experience, but I'm like, oh, I can totally see how that looks from the outside. Yeah, that's often what's get what gets the most representation, of course, is like the people who do have multiple partners and then can do all of these things together. And, and that's mm-hmm. what's shown more. And that's what's like most appealing on things like Instagram and whatnot. But yeah, there's, there's a lot of people who are just doing it very much more on the down low and low key. And like, yeah, we don't mm-hmm. have to go on lavish vacations together or have multiple homes together or whatever. But like, 
yeah, just much more low key and stuff. But right, it is it is more expensive to I think have multiple partners sometimes, or it's like if you go on dates or something, and mm-hmm. I, I don't know, buying drinks at bars or whatever, or or the time, the time cost of mm-hmm. it, like having the time to have multiple partners mm-hmm. and stuff. So right, no, definitely not just a wealthy person thing, but. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. also can see where people can get that idea. Even I think the naming of it, because I'm thinking about, you know, in my family, like my my grandparents and my great grandparents had my great grandparents had many kids with many different people. Mm-hmm. Right. So there is there is polyamorous practices in communities of color. Mm-hmm. We just did not call it that. Mm-hmm. And so I think part of it is also like the naming of this is polyamory. This is a thing that we're doing. Mm-hmm. Felt in the beginning for me a little bit like white people shit. Cause I was like, <laughs> oh, that thing? No, no, we've told my uncle did that thing. My grandmother did that thing. Like that's a, that is a thing. We didn't call, we didn't have a name for it, but that's the thing we were doing. Right. But I'm interested because I think that I've seen more queer and POC representation in poly communities and events and conversations over the last few years. I think that 10 years ago when I started researching and exploring polyamory for myself, it was very whitewashed. And so I'm interested, Michelle, in your observations around that evolution and have you seen that as well? Why do you think that is? Like, I'm, I'm just curious about that. Yeah, when I got started almost 10 years ago, which is wild, like it is, it was very like white centered, like the white voices centered. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of that is like, oh, who gets access to, you know, be able to write books on this mm-hmm. subject or teach mm-hmm. on this subject and get published on this subject. And it was, it was more fringe. It was definitely more mm-hmm. fringe. And so it's like, yeah, who gets, who gets the time and energy uh, to be able to explore this, you know, whereas some people are like, you have to, like people are working 40 plus hours a week and they have families to take mm-hmm. care of and stuff. And it's mm-hmm. like, we can't bo- be bothered with this frivolous shit that like mm-hmm. has, uh, you know, no proof of life in the mainstream. And so I think, yeah, in, in more recent years, it has become a little bit more mainstream and people are talking about it in, a bit more like uh, on dating profiles. I'll see people explicitly say that they are monogamous because there are more mm-hmm. people who identify openly as non-monogamous. Mm-hmm. That's been interesting to see. And so because it's become more mainstream, other um, communities, especially uh, marginalized communities, I think are, are finding ways to make it more accessible for themselves and are finding ways to kind of adapt it into their own uh, cultures and subcultures and whatnot. And yeah, since more and more people are are seeing it as a more viable thing, it is becoming more accessible to communities that otherwise, you know, wouldn't have been a part of it. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense, right? I think it's probably also, uh, I don't know what you think about this, but also kind of woven into the overall identity politics, which is sort of a hot topic from like non-binary folks coming out and it's being a very much legitimate identity and and from there sort of just dispersing into the community i think relationship structures also now spoken about like uh like an orientation more so do you notice that yeah yeah and i and i've uh heard this for a long time like people who see it more as like an orientation or identity versus like a choice um and i have no strong like opinions on that mm-hmm. like some people are like yeah this is who i am like i am like polyamorous i was born polyamorous and stuff mm-hmm. and other people are like yeah i could take it or leave it you know i could be monogamous or non-monogamous mm-hmm. for me i think i probably it is more of like a relationship orientation mm-hmm. where it's like i don't think i could be like reaching my like peak fulfillment mm-hmm. as just like a monogamous person 
But I don't like try to push on other people that like, yes, it is like an identity and Mm. you have to treat it as an identity Mm -hmm. um, or anything like that. Yeah. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. I hear what you're saying. I think that what I'm seeing too, it's almost like queer where it can be both identity and a political statement. Mm. And so I'm wondering your thoughts around that, around how can or is polyamory political? Yeah. And I, right. I think the queerness thing is, is really a great segue because right. It is, it is very political and it is very like, um, intentionally a good like blanket term, like mm-hmm. queer could mean so many different things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and I've heard, yeah, polyamory described as a sort of like queering of relationships. Mm-hmm. And I don't think mm-hmm. that's, that's all, uh, that's the case all the time in polyamorous relationships, but in certain cases, yeah, I, I think that, uh, is accurate. Yeah, I firmly believe that like all relationships are political, mm-hmm. even the ones that don't feel political. And mm-hmm. like, I mean, that that itself, because it feels maybe part of the status quo or part of the norm, like that is definitely plays into the politics of, of all like relationships. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. with polyamory, non-monogamy, um, queerness mm-hmm. and whatnot, it is existing outside of most mainstream acceptable norms. Like mm-hmm. I think like queerness in general, because of a lot of work of activists and and whatnot, like it has become much, much, much more acceptable. Mm-hmm. But still, there's a lot of stigma. There's still a lot of hate. There's still a lot of threats of violence mm-hmm. and stuff that folks in the queer community um, face. And that's, that's a very political thing. Like if you're in a queer relationship, even if you're in like a straight passing queer relationship, mm-hmm there's still a part of your identity that you feel like you have to hide in certain contexts Mm -hmm. for your own safety. Mm -hmm. And like, what's not political about that. (laughs) And so I think similarly in polyamory, yeah, there's, there's so, there's so much in how we relate because like politics is how we choose to distribute power and how we choose to relate to people. Mm -hmm. And so it is very much entwined. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Also, polyamory is not a protected class. So, I mean, we have the opportunity, you know, I think I name our privilege in this. We work for ourselves. And so we have the ability to say that. But we understand that if we were working at a company, at an organization, that that could be grounds for termination based on whatever the the corporate Mm -hmm. values of that organization were. And so in that way, again, it is very political. And this way that you live, love, interact with other people could mean whether, whether you have a job or not could mean whether or not you are stigmatized publicly. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think, again, that goes back to why people maybe felt like it was white people shit because there was more <laughs> protection there. Like you're already like, oh, God damn, I'm queer and I'm a person of color and I'm, you right. know, middle class or lower middle class. Like on top of that, I can't now lose my job because I want to be a multiple right. relationship. Why make myself more of a target when exactly. things are already stressful exactly. enough? Yeah. Yes, exactly. exactly. That actually nicely leads into one of the other topics that we talked about, which is representation right as as we have more voices more faces talking about polyamory you know you being one of them we know that representation is important my so we're curious to what are the lines between representation tokenization and fetishization when we are talking about polyamory we had a very similar conversation about porn actually when we did consider this our Mm -hmm. annual conference and we were kind of talking about representation in porn. And then like, how do you then, how do you draw a distinction between representation and fetishization within porn? And I think similar conversation yeah. is valid here in, in polyamory where, you know, we, we realize that representation is so important, but then how do you, how do you make sure that you don't walk down towards tokenization, tokenization these are hard words to say, right? Tokenization <laughs> and fetishization. Yeah, I think the big... Uh, distinctions 
lie in who has the power mm-hmm. and who has autonomy. Because right in in tokenization and fetishization, yeah, um, it's a hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like even if that person is brought to the forefront, so to speak. Like, do they have the voice or are they treated as an object where something else is highlighted or someone else is highlighted with meaningful representation? Like, yeah, you can throw like Asian faces on the screen or whatever, but like how important are their roles? How much screen time do they actually get? Like how much depth do their characters actually get um, versus, Mm -hmm. you know, either just side characters or drifting into stereotypes? Yeah. Meaningful representation is really, I think, like shifting power structures Mm -hmm. where it's like, it's not just keeping the status quo and adding more colors to like the crayon box. Mm -hmm. It's, (laughs) it's really Mm -hmm. rearranging, rearranging structures Mm -hmm. so that these voices are seen as the maybe most important, at -hmm. least in this context or Mm -hmm. in in multiple contexts Mm -hmm. where it's not just like, oh, you know, of course we have the status quo. This is the most important voice, but then we allow these voices into our space. It's like, no, 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 no. Mm -hmm. What spaces are mainly for certain voices? Mm -hmm. And then maybe Mm -hmm. what's usually seen as the status quo Mm -hmm. is seen as the guest. Mm -hmm. If if a guest at all, you know, like Mm -hmm. I think there's some spaces where it's like, yeah, we don't need you here or want you here Mm -hmm. (laughs) because you have the rest of the world Mm -hmm. (laughs) to be your space. Uh, So yeah, I think a lot of it, like meaningful representation versus objectification is all about power distribution. Sure. Yeah, sure. I think in there, I'm I'm wondering about intersectionality as it relates to representation, because I think that in our society, there are some folks who have more sexual capital than others. And so to be able to have hook up with a black man or an Asian woman has different social capital than a black woman or an Asian man. And so there's something really also different there that it's not just about gender. It's not just about race or culture. It's not just about, but understanding that even within those spaces, people still have different levels of access or different levels of, again, either fetishization or just even being able to be engaged in conversation based on where their intersectionality is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think the important thing with intersectionality is pointing out all of these very specific differences in background and upbringing and access and really, really breaking that down. Because I think a lot of the times, even, you know, when we're like well-meaning and we want to do the work and whatnot, like we still have this tendency a lot oftentimes for convenience and, you know, we don't know what else to do is to clump things together where it's like Asians, right? What does that even mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like <Right>. in... <laughs> What does that even mean? Like oftentimes, unfortunately, when we say Asian, we see someone who looks like me, like a light skinned East Asian, you know, from the big three, right? Where it's like Japan, Korea, or uh, China. China. Mm -hmm. And, and then, yeah, there's a lot of like classism and colorism that goes into it where it's like, there's like darker skin Asians. There's like, yeah, Mm -hmm. Southeast um, Asians, South Asians, there's, yeah, uh, (laughs) uh, West, Western Asians. And it's, that's all mushed under just Asian Mm -hmm. or in the United States, Asian American. Mm -hmm. Um, But still, that at the interest of like maybe condensing something or making it more convenient to talk about, we really like flatten out mm-hmm. the conversation so that the, there are some people who are much more represented and then there are other people who are just not talked about at all. Mm-hmm. And I think that's super important with the mm-hmm. conversation of intersectionality and then talking about representation. And really, I think we should shift more toward focusing on uh, specifics and not 
right. I think, lean on focusing on these wider categories so much. Yes, I think that means so much to me because I think what we, we used to do, these Curious Fox socials where we had peer panels where people told their stories. People would tell their stories of their relationships, non-monogamous, various non-monogamous relationships. And we would have, we had these like beautiful close container events. We'd pick a topic, we'd have a, a panel of uh, guests who told their stories. And one thing that that I took away from that, doing that for years, was to, that everyone's story is so individual. And it's understanding, it's like, yes, you're Asian, yes, you're polyamorous, but you have a very specific experience. And I'm, I think making room for those experiences, these stories um, as a whole, rather than just kind of just labeling them as this one thing, I think just is, is what really helps us understand um, different people, different relationships. And I think those stories are so precious. And I think that's also another thing that, that I'm hearing you say is in order for it to be meaningful representation, we need to tell the full story rather than have a diverse face just doing the talking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm also interested in what happens now as we have more multiracial generations that are being born, because I think to your point, Michelle, we like tend to put everything together and we're like, okay, Asian. So I'm thinking, for example, Kamala Harris, right? And certainly within the black community saying like, look at what we'll be able to do. And, but in that, then undermining the fact that she's also Indian and saying, wait a minute, what about this whole piece? Or my, my daughter, for example, was learning about Basquiat in school um, and particularly around his, his black heritage but he's half Puerto Rican and she's Puerto Rican. And I was saying, actually, that's something else that we need to capture. And so I think that we have this mind of like just claiming one parts of people. And I'm interested to see how that evolves as people become more and more intermeshed. And what will that mean in, in, in the way in which we can either compartmentalize differently or start compartmentalizing at all? That is, yeah, that is very, very interesting. Like, yeah, the different, um, like different backgrounds and, uh, like cultural backgrounds that people have. And it is, it is interesting to see what is upheld versus what is like brushed aside. Because I know in some communities, playing Kamala Harris is like, yeah, our first Asian <laughs> vice president. Yes. And it's yeah. like Obama, half black, half white. Yes. We just, uh, often right. in discourse just <laughs> say friend. that he's black. And yeah. it's, it's like, wh like, why, why do we do that? And, and, um, I have uh, my two youngest sisters, my mom remarried, my two youngest sisters, half white, half Chinese. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's, it's interesting, I think, like watching them grow up. And I think it'll be, will continue to be interesting to see how they move through, I think, spaces in their lives being like Asian, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, seeing like very, you know, very pale skin and whatnot, but also not maybe fully seen as white. Mm -hmm. And so, mm -hmm. so there's still this potential for like, othering and whatnot because it's like okay yeah you look mostly white but there's mm -hmm. still that element of exotic or foreign mm -hmm. or yeah just just other and mm -hmm. so like I think that's something that I'm not like super well versed on I think a lot of the politics of you know um being like biracial or like multiracial or have all these different cultural backgrounds but I <laughs> it is a very interesting uh topic for sure Going back to meaningful representation, I'm interested in why specifically you felt like it's important to call out being Asian. Effie and I talk all, back and forth a lot about Effie, for example, has traveled the world, lived in many continents and countries, and says one of the things that she, she'll always ask is like, where are you from? 
And I said, here in the States, you got to be real careful. I was like, you could probably get away with that because you have an accent. And so that (laughs) question is going to be heard differently because I often get asked, where are you from? And I'll say New York. And knowing actually what the person is actually asking me, and I'll say New York. And they're like, no, 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 no. I mean, like, really, though, where are you from? And I'm like, the Lower East Side of New York. And they're like, no, really? Like, where are you from? Where's your family Right, exactly. Where's your family from? Like, where in the generations? And so I'm curious about that because I, I just note that as a sensitivity of both wanting to own who I am, but also being sensitive to understanding what that means for other people. So can you talk a little bit about that? Like why, why polyamorous, why Asian? Well, I mean, the most obvious part is just like, um, even, even though just talking about like, oh, the, these encompassing terms and categories, like I am Asian and I'm polyamorous. And so that just seemed like a good straightforward handle <laughs> to choose. But um, <laughs> uh, when, uh, <laughs> but before starting uh, the page, I was trying to look for polyamorous Asians because I'm like, oh yeah, there's like a lot of there's like a really uh, a lot of really great like um, black polyamorous uh, representation, and I feel like mm-hmm. there's like a like a um, like it could be bigger, it could be more, uh, you know, all as always. But like, yeah, really solid polyamorous representation within like black communities. And I'm like, oh, cool. I'm Asian and polyamorous. There are obviously other Asian polyamorous people. And so I'm like trying to look, trying to look, trying to look. I'm like, where are they? <laughs> oh, and then I was like thinking about it for a while. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I can, I can understand. Like, I, I think a lot of people, you know, with, with family and whatnot, where it's like this, this pressure to conform to what your family wants you to be and whatnot. And I, and I think like, in, it's not specific just to like, like Asians, this pressure from family. But I think there is a, a specific flavor from um, like Asian upbringing and background of like, it's very traditional and you think of the family and, you know, you do certain things to be successful, especially in the United States. Like we came here, we're like rooted here so you can be successful and we could be stable and, you know, not, not uh, cause too much trouble. Mm. So I, and then I felt like, Hey, I I feel like I've been doing this non-monogamy thing for, for, for a good bit. And I feel like I have some nuggets of wisdom and like cautionary tales that I could share. And I feel like I can be out about that without, you know, the, um, threat of being like fired from my job or ostracized from friends and whatnot because people around me already know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm like, I feel like I can be out, publicly out about this. So I started the Instagram and fully expecting it just to be like a, just like a, a, a small space of just, you know, just maybe vomiting my thoughts onto this platform. And if nobody reads it, okay. Uh, at the very least, it's just a little journal. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I started because I'm like, I know there are polyamorous Asians out there mm-hmm. and I can be out about it. And mm-hmm. if it even reaches like one other set of polyamorous Asians, mm-hmm. like eyes, mm-hmm. who's maybe in the closet or whatever, mm-hmm. it's worth it. <laughs> yeah. 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 Love that. Love, love that you're like, I want to make sure when someone is Googling <laughs> for <laughs> other polyamorous Asians Don't that they find, find the resource that they're looking for. Yeah. Yeah, it's, <laughs> no, exactly. That's great. It's great. Exactly. That feeds into the, the sort of the next question that we have, which is around the prescribed cultural identity, right? So we, we all have sort of mm-hmm. uh, strong cultural identities that are coming from heritage. I'm curious whether you, whether that shows up for you in the way that you practice polyamory. Do you do you feel the impact of your prescribed cultural identity on your relationship structure or the way that you have relationships? Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that I'm still parsing through like every day. Like my my parents are from China and Taiwan and they yeah, they moved here. So I was born here. 
So I am an ABC. I'm an American-born Chinese. <laughs> I think my family definitely, it, it became a mix culturally, for sure, of like the, I don't know, quote-unquote, East meets West of certain values, where like my family wasn't so much of the like, oh, you have to, you know, spend all your free time studying so that you can get into Harvard and things like that. But they were very much like, yeah, you have to get good grades in order to basically get like love and approval from us. And so there was this idea of, yeah, doing doing what I should be doing and doing the right thing and not causing trouble. And that definitely resulted in me, like, I think, subsuming parts of myself mm-hmm. to be acceptable to my family. Mm-hmm. And I think that definitely translates into, has translated into my relationships where it's like, yeah, have to have to do the right thing, have to do what I'm supposed to do um, and, and whatnot. But at the same time, like as, as a kid, my, my parents had divorced when I was uh, pretty young. So I think my understandings and my formulations around relationships mm. were definitely impacted by that. I think it is hard to parse through where it's like, yeah, what is that specifically from like the Chinese background mm. or whatever, or, or how much of that is from like the Americanized version mm-hmm. and, and whatnot. And I, I find it hard to kind of like uh, separate sometimes mm. and and I think for me even I like yeah as an adult kind of going through just like trying to figure out like you know how much in my life have I kind of discarded bits of you know Chinese identity to be acceptable around peers and to kind of move through my world a bit more easily and so yeah it's it's very it's very confusing and it's like I think it's like a never-ending sort of thought process <laughs> sort of reflection type thing yeah, yeah. do you feel responsibility for, or do or maybe that this comes naturally to you within your platform to try to either bust myths or to break down stereotypes or to say, I know that you think this about Asian women, but actually I'm going to show you this other side. Is that something that feels either that comes again naturally that you're intentionally doing or that you're saying that is not my responsibility actually to break down the cultural expectation of, of hundreds and thousands of years? I think... For anyone who is in marginalized spaces or comes from marginalized backgrounds, I think there's often this pressure to be an ambassador, right? Mm. There's this pressure to be like, okay, mm-hmm. I am polyamorous and I am Asian. And so like, there yes. are like, even, even though there are certain like myths that I feel like, uh, and stereotypes that I don't feel apply to me, I still feel like I have to be a good model or version of that. Yes. And so I, I, I uh, combat that sometimes, but, but mostly my focus is like sharing my experience. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that experience conforms to this general understanding. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it doesn't. And so I don't uh, think I specifically like pinpoint like, oh yeah, this is a myth. And let me pick and choose from my life and show how it's not a myth. So mm-hmm. I try to, <laughs> within the limited format of Instagram, of course, mm-hmm. it's still... Um, as much nuance as I can into my own experience where it's like, yeah, you know, growing up as an Asian American woman, I was definitely influenced by a lot of narratives that, you know, Asian women are a bit more submissive Mm. and, you know, obedient. And again, like coming back to like, you know, doesn't cause trouble. And Mm -hmm. that's sort of like, I think as a, you know, (laughs) younger person thinking of, almost being honored by objectification mm. to a degree because mm. I didn't know that I could uh, deserve more or get more. Mm. But it's like, oh, wow, like you're even paying attention to me and like objectifying mm-hmm. me. <laughs> this doesn't feel 100% mm-hmm. great, but you're paying attention to me, that kind of thing. Right. Right. So there's there are elements of that where it's like, yeah, totally. That was totally 
infused into my upbringing and my thinking as as a as a kid and it still lingers as an adult. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, I definitely want to touch on that. Yeah. But at the same time where it's like, yeah, I'm bisexual and polyamorous and like a very sexual person as well and not in not in this way that's like for this like white male gaze or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's like I'm a person who's trying to figure out my own thing and doing my own thing as this autonomous human being with my own, you know, going back to like this uh, specific story, like with my own specific story that hopefully Mm -hmm. resonates with with some people here and there. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's so important that you're telling your story. It's essential, (laughs) in fact, that we understand that different people, different relationships, and there's room and space for all of that. We talk a lot about Mm -hmm. inspiration and permission on this show. It's one of our sort of missions that we want to provide inspiration. We want to talk to people. We want to talk with people about things that otherwise might not be talked about uh, and, and give people inspiration mm-hmm. of like the way that they can be in the world and also give them permission by bringing stories of people who are doing it. So I think what yeah. you're doing is, is right there. It's, it's just, it's just full, full of inspiration and permission of just like living your, living your story out loud. So thank you for doing that work. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. yeah. So what I appreciate about what you bring to the conversation, Michelle, is that, even though we're talking about things in big terms, about being Asian, about being polyamorous, about the way we're showing up politically in these spaces, you're also having the conversations in ways that feel really layered and nuanced and textured. And so even in what you just shared about the distinction between not wanting to be fetishized and also feeling appreciative for the attention makes me think of my own experience in my own life of, of, you know, thinking that I don't want to be used, but also what's worse than that is if no one wants to use me, if no one wants to pay attention to me. Yeah. Because that's often what's uh, presented to us as like the acceptable ways of like, yeah, this is how you're consumed in our society. Mm -hmm. This is how you, uh, you exist to be consumed. And so if you're not being consumed, what are you, what good are you? If Mm -hmm. you're not being productive, if you're not being useful for someone else's pleasure or consumption of some sort, what good are you? Yeah. It's so insidious. Uh, yeah, yes, that's the perfect <laughs> word for it. Yes, yes, yes. And so I think that's why I want to name, like, it, the, you know, I, I appreciate being in a space where it is that complicated and we are still trying to figure it out and we are pushing back on something while also, also, you know, needing and wanting it because that is the only option that's given <laughs> to us. And like, just all of those pieces. I, I, you know, I think my final question for you around this work is where do you see the importance of creating online community in order to be able to flesh out and have more of these conversations? Mm, yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, the, the, this continued like Instagram account, like, I, th- I think it's, it surprises me a lot where it's like, oh yeah. Cause, cause sometimes, you know, there's still a voice in my head that's like, oh, you know, it's just like, yeah, it's just your experience, you know, who, who cares? Or like, there's nothing particularly interesting or resonant about it. It's just whatever your life isn't particularly interesting. And then other times I'm like, what are you talking about? My life's not interesting where it's like, you know, <laughs> like, uh, uh, even these days, like once a month, like I'll have, you know, dinner with like, uh, you know, two partners and like a queer platonic friend and stuff. And it's like super normal and we're all very normal about it (laughs) and like very comfortable with metamors and things like that. And it's it's not this weird thing. It's like, yeah, that's interesting. That's, I think also like what Effie was talking about earlier, where it's like, you know, even showing people examples of what is even possible, where it's like, sometimes Mm. we don't even, even if we had these inclinations or tendencies, like it it can't be expressed if we can't even imagine that that can even happen or exist. Mm -hmm. It's like, what? 
I can't have multiple healthy, sustainable partnerships at the same time. And like, like that's a thing we can do that. Like I can, Is that allowed? I can all eat together, <laughs> right? We can all have like <laughs> sit around the table, <laughs> like eat together and then like, you know, play board games together and stuff. And it's not like super weird and yeah. <laughs> like aberrant and deviant and all these bad things. Yeah. So I, I continue to be surprised, I think, because of the silly imposter syndrome voice. But yeah, I I really enjoy the Instagram, this, I guess, this kind of hobby. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and with regard to like online community, like that can be like a double-edged sword, right? That can be like, mm. it has its good, it has its bad. I mean, Fair. you know, talking about these these platforms that very often censor certain, certain topics that they deem are basically not advertiser mm. friendly. Mm. And mm. so again, going back to this, like, oh, having to navigate around what is <laughs> um, acceptable for consumption. Mm-hmm. And so how can we navigate within that while still creating community and while still dispersing really important and sometimes like radical information Mm -hmm. or information um, that helps empower people towards like liberation and things like that. Like, yeah, how do we (laughs) navigate around this very like consumption, profit-driven culture on these platforms? Mm -hmm. Social media, especially like Instagram, very uh, image-focused and Mm -hmm. I think is is like all social media where it's like, yeah, very curated and can give people very false ideas and information about what other people's lives are like, where it's like, wow, these mm-hmm. beautiful people who, um, you know, Photoshop their bodies and, and, and all, all of that. So there's, there's the bad, mm-hmm. <laughs> but mm-hmm. yeah, it brings a lot of people together. Mm-hmm. It can bring a lot of people together where it's like, oh, wow, you know, like in my day-to-day life, I don't see any of this kind of representation, but there's someone all the way across the world who's doing this thing. Mm-hmm. And it, they're showing that it's viable. It's like, wow, it's connecting me to all these other people who are doing this thing. And wow, I, I just didn't even know that was possible or ac- accessible. So mm-hmm. there's definitely bad with it. And in my perspective, like there's still a lot of good that can come yeah. from social media and sometimes it's not worth it for some people, which is very, very valid and very understandable um, because it can suck trying to navigate through the terms of service and whatnot. Along with the bad, there's the good. Yeah, mm-hmm. We try to do, we try to eke out what good we can right. <laughs> from the social media behemoth. Yeah. Yes, yes. I think what the, my biggest struggle with social media is that it is, there isn't much room for nuance. And I think that's kind of where yeah. the beauty of these things are. That's where you really get to understand some of these things. And I think, like Jackie said earlier, I think you do a really good job of, of weaving in some nuance. Um, I think it's, it's fairly rare because more about bang stories get more uh, more attention. At the same time, I think it's in the nuance where we really learn and grow and connect, and um, that's that's always my my biggest biggest gripe with it. It's just like there's no nuance out there, but it is a channel yeah. where we can provide inspiration and permission, like directly into people's phones, you know, directly in front of them. So, <laughs> and hopefully move the needle a mm-hmm. little bit, but yeah. Right. So we do a podcast right. for the nuance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I would love us to ask you just four questions just to get to know you a little bit more. These are some rapid fire questions, just to peel back an additional layer beyond what we're seeing in Instagram to get to know Michelle more. And so the first question I'm going to ask you is, what is one piece of advice that you would give to your younger self about love, sex, or relationships? (laughs) I would tell baby Michelle that 
boundaries are not just important, but they're essential. And that it's okay. Like, it's not just okay to have boundaries. Like it is necessary to have boundaries and you're not just like selfish bitch or (laughs) for having boundaries. (laughs) Like, oh man. Yeah. Little, little Michelle and still adult Michelle still, still struggles with establishing and expressing healthy boundaries for sure. Yeah, what Boy. a great answer. I think so many times I look back at my younger self and I'm just the, the moments of cringe are that where I was like, why did you keep going there, little Jackie? <laughs> like, why did you let them? Why were you doing that? Yes, yes. Yeah. Love that answer. Okay. <clears throat> what is one romantic or sexual adventure on your bucket list? Oh, man. I just <laughs> so much. I mean, yeah, I just, I, there's just so mm, much. I can't think of one. Right. <laughs> it's funny. Right. I feel like I, I call myself like a measured hedonist because um, mm-hmm. I like I'm not super, super like wild, but I do like experiencing a lot of different things. This might tie into a later uh, answer, but exploring the depths of, I think, my romantic potential, because mm-hmm. I think I've suppressed that in myself um, a lot mm-hmm. for like, mm-hmm. you know, protection. But I think like how much I can really uh, give in healthy ways to other people and also like getting back. And I think, I think just exploring that, like that, that's not like a fun and sexy answer, but like, <laughs> no, I know, but that yeah, that really, really what you're, exploring. You're getting and giving. It can be. Yeah, yeah. It's like the depths of what love and connection can mean in a romantic sense or, or not. And, and then I think, I mean, I think it follows like deeper romance and connection. Like, you know, what are, what are the, the depths that can be explored with regard to like uh, sex and relationships in in uh in concert with that yeah mm-hmm. all these all these possibilities mm-hmm. love 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 how do you how do you challenge the status quo oh man i think <laughs> like my one of my favorite quotes like albert camus was just like uh you know make your very existence like an act of rebellion mm-hmm. where <laughs> i because th- i think mm-hmm. existing and i think even thriving or finding happiness or whatever especially in this world that we currently live in can be a radical act. Like, yeah, just being happy, finding contentment, I think can be mm-hmm. a radical act. So yeah, as a, I mean, you know, going through identities, like as a bisexual, polyamorous, Asian or whatever, like someone who has, I think, found nuggets of of happiness and contentment. And I think is, you know, cont- like continuing to foster that. I think that's mm. radical. And I think anyone who who finds nuggets of of happiness and contentment like that, it's, it's very radical. Mm, totally. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Last but definitely not the least, what are you curious about lately? Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, going back to, you know, like the the depths of romance and stuff, Mm -hmm. that answer, I'm very curious about, you know, because I'm still learning all the time, you know, curious about what polyamory can look like Mm -hmm. in so many different contexts and like really expanding on what community means and interconnectedness so that Mm -hmm. we get away from this like rugged individualist type society like what can community look like again and I mean I think we have a lot Mm. of examples from like history that we can look to but Mm. yeah that's that's what I'm very curious about like Mm. what is the future (laughs) of uh, I think like non-monogamy and whatnot Mm. but also like what what's existing now that is that is possible I'm Mm. very curious about that yeah love that and so are we I think So that was an interesting conversation. I, I appreciated the opportunity to explore, again, explore intersectionality in that different way. And and there were definitely a few things that Michelle said that resonated with me. I think 
first her example of being a good model, like a good ambassador mm-hmm. <laughs> for, for whatever, like a good ambassador for my ethnicity, a good ambassador as a female, a good ambassador as a queer person, good ambassador as a non-monogamous person, like whatever space I am in, that I am the other in that situation, that I am the minority. I am fully aware that I need to like show up as the best of that, br- of that mm-hmm. brand because mm-hmm. I'm like mm-hmm. representing all of my people. Mm-hmm. And so like, I need to unpack that some more because I know that that is not necessarily or true. Like that is something I'm putting on myself. But as soon as she said, it, I was like, yes, that is mm-hmm. true. And it does not feel authentic and it doesn't feel nuanced. Mm-hmm. And so I think that is, that is part of what I am sitting with and thinking about, because I think that is also true in the space of non-monogamy. I think that on the one hand, there are times when I want to show up and talking about all of the positive things, mm-hmm. because I know that there is so much negative feedback out there in the world about what that looks like. But then I also want to normalize and be like, oh no, but here are the negative things because this is also true. And I want to, but then you, I like go back and forth. Same thing with social media. I'm like, here are all the amazing, beautiful, lovely images because I want to show what thriving looks like. But also I don't want to be fake. And so like here are then the sad and scary Mm -hmm. and bad things. And so what a balance, what a balance to be human. (laughs) What a chore to be human, to wake up every morning. Oh God. I do say every now and then I hang out with my dog whom I love dearly. And I imagine myself, I say, well, next time I come back to this planet, I want to come back as a cute dog of a loving family with no worries in the world, (laughs) with all the food you can eat, all the travel, no rent, just love cuddles (laughs) and treats. Yes, particularly because I feel like being a dog would be the extreme opposite of how you and I show up in the world. I think that you and I are like, what is the new thing that we can learn, (laughs) do, explore, unwrap, dissect? And dogs are just like, I just want cuddles and to play and to be outside and to eat something yummy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 exactly. So that was one of the takeaways. I think another. Well, first, I just love the the phrase of the, the idea that polyamory is the queering of relationships. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that I'm like, yes, that is true. That that open really that being open and non monogamous. It's like right. It's the, the equivalent of of queer. That that is now the package of I am just not straight or I'm just not mono. And there's something somewhere in between. There's something on that spectrum that resonates with me. I like that. I think that the last thing that 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 also just stuck with me that I love is the quote from Albert Camus, which is the only way to deal with unfree world is become so absolutely free that your very existence is an act of rebellion. rebellion. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. And so she talked a little bit about kind of the nuggets of happiness and just savoring that. And so I've been thinking about that, like just ways in which you can one can find delight and joy and how that in and of itself and just existing is is an act of rebellion. I think so many of the folks that we interview when we get to that that question of how do you challenge the status quo and their, their answer is by existing, just <laughs> right. simply by being. And yeah. so that totally resonates. I love that. I love that. Yeah, those definitely stick out for me too. Um, and of course, Albert Camus' quote resonates with so many of us who choose to live a life by design rather than a life by default with an activist heart. So that definitely stuck out for mm. me um, and got me excited. I'm also really interested in bringing this topic home to tell people, to remind people to consider your partner's partner or partner's experience or the experience of those who you might be dating, right? Especially if you are closer mm. to the top of the social power pyramid, um, especially if you're, and especially if you are partnered with or dating those who are not 
So consider, consider their story, consider the, their experience in the world. Listen, like, like really listen with a gentle curiosity and a generous and compassionate ear. Not to give advice, not to tell them to do better or to feel different or, you know, this is what you should do, but just to listen and hold space and, and accept and learn about their experience. So bring this stuff right home. Examine your privileges and your prejudices for sure. Yeah. Yeah. We did an episode, I think it's episode 30 on the podcast where we spoke with Angie Gunn about non-monogamy and the paradigm shift and challenging the frameworks that oppress. And a big piece of that conversation was about power and privilege. Mm. And, and it was at a time when the uprising started to happen here in the United States. And we were talking about how race and class and gender and identity and sexual orientation, how these are all things that we were fighting in the streets, mm. but realizing that those also have undercurrents and represent themselves back at home, to your mm-hmm. point, like in our relationships, that those power dynamics exist. And that if we really want to create environments where there is equity in our country, in our world, world, then we need to start those in our homes, in our relationships. So I encourage folks to, to check out that. And then we did a blog post that follows up after that. You can find it on our website, wearecuriousfoxes.com. If you look up blogs around examining power dynamics for thriving relationships. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, on the show, we often name our privilege because we are able to talk about our open relationship structures and our sex lives to an extent because we're financially independent. We own our own business. We decide who we work with and for how long. Mm-hmm. But not everyone's in the same boat, unfortunately. So please don't force people to come out as poly. If they're not ready to introduce you to their family, their friends, their colleagues, don't take it personally. Don't out people. And please don't ask people where they're really, really from. Take their first <laughs> answer at face value. Yes. I don't know if you, were, if you remember the old ABC commercials and it'd be like the star that goes across the street, the, the screen. It's like, the more you know. Like, I feel like we need to do a little commercial that's just, <laughs> please don't ask people where they're really, really from. And then that's it. And then it's like, the more you know. <laughs> yeah, on behalf of everybody in the world, please stop asking that question. Unless, I mean, to your point, Effie, unless you are not rooted in the trauma of <laughs> growing up in the United States, and maybe that's a real genuine question because you are from another place in the world and you're like, oh, I'm from this place. What place are you from? Yeah. And if you do, just understand that that question is weighty. Exactly. I think it's the when you're saying where you're really from. I think that's the piece you can we you cannot bother doing. You know, you just <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Yes, where are you from? And then we answer, and then you say, "Oh, cool, that's great," and that's yes. it. <laughs> exactly. And move on. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> If you want to find Michelle out there in the world, then you can find Michelle on Instagram at Polyamorous While Asian. And you can learn more about her via her website, polyamorouswhileasian.com. And while you are online looking up websites, then you should go on to ours, wearecuriousfoxes.com, where you can find blogs and articles from educators, from authors, from Effie and I about sex and thriving in open non-monogamous relationships and resources for your personal growth. On our website, you can also find links to our Instagram and Facebook pages, which you can find at We Are Curious Foxes. You can join the conversation about the podcast. You can see some fun pictures of us. You can be engaged with other foxes. If you'd like some more behind the scenes footage, 
to mini episodes and access to over 50 videos from educator-led workshops, then go to our Patreon, wearecuriousfoxes.com. And you can support this work in a few different ways. First, certainly by joining our Patreon, but also by subscribing here to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or following us on Spotify and Stitcher. You can rate, you can send a comment. And specifically, I know that we say every single week, like rate and share, but be thoughtful. Are Is there somebody in your life who would resonate with this particular topic? Is there someone who you talk to about intersectionality, about race and faith and about class and non-monogamy? Then share this episode. If there's another specific episode that you thought of that you listened to and you're like, oh yeah, that I think this this my friend would be interested in that. Or, ooh, this would be an interesting topic to talk to my partner. Then share it with them. Mm-hmm. And if you want to share some information with us, you can send us an email or a voice memo at listening at wearecuriousfoxes.com or you could record a question and hopefully we will play it on the show. This episode is produced and edited by Nina Pollock, who's essential in helping us amplify diverse voices. Our intro music is composed by Dave Saha. We are so grateful for their work and we're grateful to you for listening. As always, stay curious, friends. Curious Fox Podcast is not and will never be the final word on any topic. We solely aim to encourage curiosity and provide a space for exploration through connection and story. We encourage you to listen with an open and curious mind and we'll look forward to your feedback. Stay curious, friends. Stay curious. Stay curious. Stay curious. Stay curious. Stay curious. Stay curious. Stay curious.